Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Over the weekend, we covered the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California, where we met with the 26th Secretary of the United States Air Force, Frank Kendall. We'll have that conversation later in the program. But first, joining us as he does every Monday is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be back, Fargo. Uh, always a pleasure having you on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, uh, interesting note, obviously we had the Reagan uh, Forum. I know you tuned in for Secretary Austin's uh, address. Uh, you had a great note. You, you talked about the necessity of uh, accelerating acquisition reform change something that you and I actually have spent about three decades talking about uh, yeah. together. Um, you know, walk, walk us through the major themes of, of your note and what you have on your mind uh, this week, because aside from the week ahead that we're going to get to also, and, and this was an undertone throughout the, the, the Reagan Forum, the concern that Russia is doing more than just posturing on the Ukrainian border, that, that the Russians are likely to invade uh, Ukraine early next year, and the, the talk was, okay, so what, is, what does Putin really want ultimately? Let, let's start with whatever takeaway you had from the Reagan Forum sure. and then well, how I, it ties into your acquisition note. Yeah, I just, I riffed off uh, the secretary's comments on, you know, I think his two big priorities were China and innovation. And I really didn't hear the secretary say anything new on the defense innovation front. And so I would just put down some thoughts about, you know, this debate needs to be broadened to include, you know, why does it take so long to get things done? DOD really needs to make some new champions here. You've had companies like, you know, SpaceX and Palantir that have kind of broken through, but, you know, ultimately they're going to, they're going to have to award contracts to, to um, new companies, new entrants that obviously they believe can, can do the work. But I think the more, um, the more that, you know, new companies are able to scale uh, from program wins. That's going to attract capital. That's going to attract new competitors. And frankly, it's probably going to shake up some of the behavior of the large heritage contractors as well, which I think, as you well know, you know, tend to, to take most of their capital and redeploy it to shareholders in the form of, of stock buybacks and dividends. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of ask, well, are the incentives really aligned <clears throat> with what the DOD is trying to Get from contractors, you know, there's probably a, a look that has to be taken on uh, profit policy and, and working capital funding policies. <laughs> you know, are there tweaks that can be made there that might accelerate some of the, um, the innovation that the secretary wants? And, you know, I think it also, um, the, the, the two other thoughts, you know, there should probably be more attention to how much it costs to do business with the Department of Defense, you know. Secretary talked about the the high barriers to entry, but um, you know those barriers are really the cost of doing business with the Department of Defense. And I think if Congress spent some time uh, shining a light on those costs, it, it might help tear some of those barriers down. I, I I always think it's encouraging whenever a Defense Secretary talks about the Valley of Death, with it, which is a, a big piece of the of the challenge, and he certainly did that. Um, 
I mean, to you on the incentives front, right? I mean, you and I know plenty of uh, senior folks at each of the defense contractors, um, and and their attitude very much is, look, I mean, if if you move the cheese, you will move us with it, uh, right. right? And right. and I think, in fairness, every you know the 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 savvy of the bigs recognize that the ecosystem is changing and that the customer is very frustrated and the customer is looking for alternatives. Uh, and, I, and I do believe each is in their own way trying to adjust to this ecosystem. The question is, how do you encourage that change uh, and, um, you know, maybe move away from some of the litigiousness, some of the other, uh, you know, risk avoidance uh, that, that unfortunately we've had. I mean, the, the department also can't speak out of both sides of its mouth on this. It can encourage people to innovate and then not reward those innovators, right? Right, absolutely. And I think that that's a big, big frustration. Right, Absolutely. And then I guess, you know, the other thing that's on my mind is, is just what's been going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine and, you know, the multiple warnings and, and frankly, the fact that it finally made uh, both the Washington Post and, and the New York Times uh, over the weekend about, you know, the magnitude of the Russian buildup and how concerned people are about this. So one of the key issues this week is going to be the outcome of a, a telephone conversation or I guess a video call these days between um, between President Biden and uh, and Putin, and you know if <laughs> there's some kind of breakthrough and maybe you know it eases the tension uh, that's been building, <clears throat> and you see you know physical evidence of maybe um, a change in the posture <clears throat> that Russia has built up around Ukraine, um, you know it, it could be okay crisis avoided. But if you if that doesn't change, you know I wrote another note over the weekend about people really need to start thinking about a war, what a war would look like and what its implications would be. Um, and, and I highly commend uh, a, um, a, a podcast that uh, was done by the Modern War Institute with uh, CNA's Michael Kaufman on this issue. Um, it's, it's very, really very worthwhile listen uh, to just kind of understand, you know, the magnitude of what's happening and and what some of the ramifications of it could be. And uh, uh, Michael is a frequent uh, guest on our program and is one of the best uh, analysts on uh, all things Russia. And I know that his uh, uh, tone on this has changed from likely just another Zapod series exercise, right? If, if I understand correctly what he said to, wow, this is really a concerning development. Yep, yep. Um, the uh, one of the the interesting elements uh, of the conference again a lot of conversation on you know how do you deter we asked uh, Senator Jack Reed uh, the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman on how the United States can help deter Russia um, and so that was you know a key topic of discussion and then how you punish Russia ultimately it was interesting the dynamics that this time might drive Putin to actually invade. Um, you, you know, he crushed uh, domestic opposition in the form of Navalny, who's in prison and his entire group has been broken up. Authoritarianism and internal repression have gone up. Uh, Putin feels like the sanctions don't exactly directly impact him all of that much, right? Because Russia is still a very big country with, you know, takes care of a lot of its internal needs. They have built their own ecosystem. So when you talk about how bad economic and visa, you know, against the dollar and all of this other stuff, it's a ruble-based economy. So, um, you know, and, yeah, and it's, it's going to be, you know, it's really not going to directly impact the United States, but it's, it's going to do a lot of economic harm to countries like Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, you know, who are major, major trading partners with, with Russia. 
And then you have the whole overlay of energy and, you know, natural gas and, and oil. And, you know, it's not just the military ramifications, there are going to be economic ramifications to this as well. Um, you know, at a time that Europe and, and the U.S. are again, the U.S. economy is doing very well, but, uh, you know, you're again kind of looking at, wow, is, is there going to be further impacts from, uh, from this new variant of the COVID-19 virus that could once again kind of stymie or, or slow down economic activity? Um, we've got uh, about uh, a minute and a half left, but very quickly, this, this cross connects to China as well, doesn't it? Because Putin has made the case that, that Ukraine is Russian just as Taiwan is Chinese, yeah. right? So, so this crosses over to what, is, what the Chinese are doing over in, in Asia as well, doesn't it? Well, it does. It's all interlinked, Fago. You know, it's, it's going to, you know, ricochet back through Iran as well, too. I mean, the, the JCPOA talks don't seem to be going particularly well. So 2022 could be a very challenging year from a geopolitical military standpoint. And, um, you know, it, it could shape the midterm elections. You've got an election up and coming up in France in April, the first round of uh, the presidential election in, um, in France will take place at that time. So it will, there are going to be a lot of, you know, what, what Russia does and how uh, the West responds is, is really going to set a global tone. Um, and, you know, as I wrote about, I mean, there, there are still options here for Russia to fail miserably at this. Um, I, the Ukrainian military is not the Ukrainian military uh, that we saw in 2014 or 2015. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think Russia is going to have a, uh, an easy time with, you know, when they do opt for military power, if that's the path they take. Um, very quickly, uh, we've got about a minute. What are the key events folks ought to be paying attention to and tuning into this week? Well, we heard SecDef speak on Saturday, but he's speaking again at a, um, a Defense One three-day conference. Uh, Kath Hicks um, is speaking uh, at a um, USNI event, a Defense Forum Washington 2021. We haven't heard from her for a bit. She'll probably talk about some of these reviews, including the national strategy uh, uh, review that's up. Mara Carlin is also speaking at the Center for New American Security on Thursday. And then, of course, we have the Summit of Democracy. And I think, you know, that takes place on the 9th and 10th. That's going to be virtual. But, you know, both China and Russia have pushed back pretty vehemently about this against, against this particular summit. It's going to be interesting, you know, what comes out on the other side of that. Um, are there any other concrete ideas or, or actions that could be taken um, to help build democracy against this assault from authoritarianism, both internationally and domestically? Aaron, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on. Have a great week. Look forward to having you on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Valgo. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. While we were at the Reagan Forum, as I mentioned, we met with Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the United States Air Force. Here's our conversation. Sir, thanks very much. Uh, lovely seeing you uh, in person and thanks very much. It was terrific talking uh, at uh, the Air Force Association show. Um, 
Every year for the last uh, 10 years or so, you and I have had a conversation about continuing resolutions and exactly how bad they are. Um, it has become an unfortunate melodrama. The United States Air Force is as, you know, each one of the services are important in their own way, but if you're looking to deter or to fight China at range on the far side of the Pacific, I think that most people would understand that the United States Air Force falls and features prominently in that. Um, you and the Chief, uh, General C.Q. Brown, are working hard and working with an urgency that I think uh, the rest of the force looks at and admires. How do you change this absurd budgetary dynamic? Is there engagement? You've talked about doing engagement. Are there anomalies? We talked to Chairman Reed about that and he talked about anomalies. How, how do you address this because the political situation seems to be getting worse and in 2022 if pundits are right and the house and the senate flip it may become even harder well first of all uh, i think it's early to talk about anomalies because i think we ought to work really hard to make sure we don't have a continuing resolution that goes through the year uh, both the space force and the air force are are very relevant to the to the concerns you expressed about projecting power long distances and confronting China's if necessary. Uh, and I'm working very well with both Jerry Raymond and CQ Brown to try to move us in the right direction, as you say, with a sense of urgency. We do need to, I, I've been trying to work with the Congress to uh, foster more of a sense of urgency there. I have a threat briefing that's classified that I've been taking around, and I'm continuing to give that to members. Uh, I understand the local politics implications of some of the things that we need to do, but somehow we've got to find a way around that so we can move forward. It, it's, it's a great drag. I refer to it as an anchor sometimes. It's holding the Air Force back and that we have to maintain a lot of old airplanes uh, that really are, are at their design life basically are, are costly to sustain and that are not particularly threatening to China. Uh, we have to move beyond that in order to free up the resources we need for modernization. Um, you've, you've talked about urgency. Uh, we heard from the Defense Secretary. Uh, Defense Secretary Austin talked about the valley of death, something you tried to work uh, very, very hard when you were the Undersecretary of Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. Um, the Air Force has a number of uh, very innovative uh, incubator efforts. But at the end of the day, it's about really meaningfully delivering capability to the field instead of doing a science project quickly and satisfying yourself with it. Uh, for example, there was the demonstrator aircraft that may or may not have been launched by you several years ago that flew, but it was a demonstration project. It wasn't a fielded capability yet. Ultimately, what are the things that you have to do and what are the things that you are doing in order to be able to drive this process faster? The guidance I've given uh, for all of our acquisition programs is that they should be designed to provide meaningful uh, military capability as quickly as possible. And I'm also looking at them to make sure that they're uh, focused on the, the, the pacing challenge, as the Secretary said. All the things the Secretary talked about in terms of innovation are going to be helpful, and we need to do those things. But the thing that really will get things across the value of death is decisions on procurement on the other side. Uh, and now that I'm uh, in this position in the Air Force, I have some greater influence over that. So I'm starting uh, two new programs. Uh, this is an example of the things I'm doing. That will be unmanned combat aircraft uh, that will accompany our, our leading edge fighters or possibly the B-21 and be used as uh, essentially a team of manned and unmanned uh, systems integrated together and able to do a number of innovative things tactically. So that's, that's one thing that I'm doing. And I'm focusing those programs, which will be just, I can't say a great deal more about than I already have, Vago, 
uh, on getting to meaningful military capability as quickly as possible. I'm also this week on, uh, on Tuesday conducting a day-long review of all the existing programs that I have in the Air Force which were intended to develop operational capability. And what I want to find out uh, more than anything else is how many of them are really funded to do that. I think a lot of those programs are funded to do, as you say, a, a demonstration, maybe produce a couple of experimental prototypes, but not to actually get to real meaningful military capability. And we're going to have to call that herd, if you will, and focus on the things that are going to make the greatest difference and that we can resource to actually get into the, into the hands of operators and to make a difference. How do you make, you and the chief are focused really on uh, the same problem, which the United States Air Force prides itself on excellence. Mm -hmm. It prides itself on a culture of safety. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get a culture of speed built into that, given that uh, bureaucracies, even, even good ones, can have lead feet? As CQ's dictum of uh, accelerate, change, or lose is spot on. I thought that was a brilliant piece that he wrote. Uh, he and uh, General Berger also wrote a piece on readiness, which I thought was also spot on, and about how we have to manage readiness over time and think about what, we're, what we want to be ready for and when we want to be ready for it. So I'm, I have a great partner in CQ. He's a very thoughtful person. He's a, a very forward-leaning person, very innovative person. And he and I are, are working together on these things. Same, same can be said of General Raymond. He has moved the Space Force in the direction of designing and fielding more resilient systems. The reason we changed our strategy during the Obama administration for space, and the reason there is a Space Force, I believe, is because of the threats to our assets in space. We, for decades, we've depended upon a small number of assets that are fairly easily targetable. Uh, they're expensive. Uh, they last a very long time. They do a good job, particularly with some of the you know uh, functions of providing intelligence, for example, or, or nuclear warning and uh, nuclear command and control. But we've got to move to more resilient systems. And, and I have to compliment Jay Raymond and what he's done with his team to move in the right direction there. But more needs to be done in that area as well. Um, you mentioned uh, in, your, in your talk that we have to do things differently to respond to China. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you said, they're threatening um, our precious high-value targets. But, and you said there are things you are doing. What are some of the things that you are doing in order to be able to change this dynamic? Because it is becoming increasingly concerning that the Chinese do not appear to view deterrence works as long as your adversary looks at you and says, wow, they have a lot of capability that worry me. We may have a lot of things. We may tell ourselves we're very good, and in some ways we are very good, but we don't have as many capabilities to reach them where they need to be reached, ultimately, and that's when deterrence fails and miscalculation happens. I don't think China should underestimate either the U.S.'s resolve or its capabilities. That would be a grave mistake on their part. Uh, but we do need to move forward, and I, I've organized the effort to do that under six what I call operational imperatives. Uh, the first one is a resilient space order of battle that meets our needs from space and is uh, able to both defend our assets as, as well as to threaten the assets that China increasingly is depending upon for their operations. Uh, we, have to, we have to increase the resilience of our forward basing for the tactical part of the Air Force. Uh, the, the ACE, the uh, Agile Combat Employment Program that the Air Force has started, is a step in the right direction, but we need to do more than, than is currently planned. Uh, we need to take the uh, ABMS program, which was focused on uh, connecting all of our, our various sensors and decision makers and, and weapon systems in a more efficient way 
and focus it on operational advantage more directly. I don't think enough has been done to define exactly what investments are needed to improve to maximize the return on those investments in terms of operational capabilities. We've got to focus ABMS. Uh, the program you mentioned, the Next Generation Air Dominance Program, uh, needs to be addressed as a system of systems, and we have to define exactly what that is. Uh, it will include unmanned uh, aircraft as well as manned aircraft, and it will include networking those aircraft with offboard sensors that, that can provide it with information and, uh, and, and help in the planning of battle management and so on. Um, uh, we also need to work hard on the problem of moving targets, whether there are ground or air moving targets. And that's, at, uh, to the extent possible, I, I want to see that done from space, uh, where I think it can be done most efficiently for a country that's a global power and has concerns like that around the world, but particularly with China. Uh, you mentioned at the very beginning, Vago, that you know the Air Force, and, the, and, and I would add the Space Force, have the agility to be where we need them to be, either immediately or very quickly, and that's going to be a very valuable commodity. So that, that scenario tends to drive all of my planning and all my thought about where we need to go operationally. The, just, you'll find this interest uh, of interest because you're a military historian. I've asked the question of whether we should think about the next conflict we might be engaged in or the one we most want to pre prevent as looking more like D-Day or the 8th Air Force's strategic bombing campaign. And to me, it looks more like D-Day. It looks like an engagement, whether it's uh, an incursion into the Baltics by the Russians or an invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese in which the decisive uh, period of time will be hours or, or a small number of days. We need to be ready to, to defeat that kind of an operation if we're going to deter it. Uh, to get back to your original question about deterrence, I think we have to think about that as the thing, that type of an operation, that type of a conflict, as a thing we need to be prepared to address. What's the window? Because there is a concern that, especially with the fractional orbital bombardment and a lot of other things, that the United States is not matching these things at the pace we have to. Do you think that there is a zone of particular danger that should focus people's attention? Is it five years, four years, two I, years? I don't have a date. Um, I, I think that the risk increases. I think we should... I don't think it's in China's interest to invade Taiwan now or at any time. I think that the consequence for them, particularly economically and otherwise, even if they're successful, would be very severe. And they should keep that in mind. And I do think that they should expect that uh, their, their odds of success will not be as high as they would like them to be. Um, but they're increasing to, they are, they are moving forward building a number of capabilities, and they've been at this for more than two decades now, designed to give them the, the capability to do that and to try to keep us out of the region while they do it. Um, so we have to move forward. The risk to me is increasing. I don't have a date in mind, uh, and I hope the Chinese don't have a date in mind either, because I think it would be a mistake to lock themselves into something like that. So it's, it's a period of increasing tensions. In the meantime, of course, the U.S. has a lot of requirements around the world. Uh, the other threats that exist are uh, well understood and have been there and will continue to be there for a long time, and we can't ignore them. We have to deal with those as well. Uh, but for me, as, as the Secretary uh, mentioned earlier, the pacing challenge is China. And it's not a challenge that's getting less over time. Uh, the Chinese uh, and the Russians have been doing a lot of stuff in space. I've covered it over many years, whether it's satellites on intersecting orbits, whether it was uh, dazzling uh, that go beyond uh, kinetic uh, testing. Um, ultimately, do and there is, you know, I mean, it is a matter of public record. I think uh, General Raymond has also discussed it about our spacecraft and our space assets being under constant assault. Um, 
How do you change that? Because historically, the United States has said that's causes belli. If you are doing damage to our uh, hard assets, that you know it goes beyond dazzling and stuff like that. It's it's problematic. What is it the United States has to do in order to be able to drive uh, these adversary nations away from what is negative and threatening behavior? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about uh, what's happening or isn't happening. Um, we do need, obviously, to harden our assets. Uh, they can be attacked in wartime, and so we have to harden them for that reason and for no other. The, uh, and we have to have appropriate responses for when they are attacked in peacetime. And I, I think we're quite capable of doing that. But briefly, I want to ask you, um, one of the things that you've talked about is the nexus between strategy and budgeting and this chicken and egg argument that happens. Uh, and this is something that you actually spend a lot of time on. What is the nexus between strategy and budgeting, and how do we have to think about it? And, and, what is, and how, how is it you're implementing it in the Air Force? They have to be tightly coupled. I mean, I mentioned my guidance when I came into the building. You know, if it doesn't scare China, why are we doing it? That, that reflects the priority of China. Um, we also have to look at how we balance risk over time, and that includes changes in the foreseeable threats that we're trying to manage. And we are trying to manage uh, and have effective deterrence against a variety of threats around the world. Uh, the one that is obviously from Secretary Austin's and many other people's comments, the one that is, is driving us and motivating us the most right now is China. And so we have to align things with that. So while we're, while, while we're formulating the words of a national defense strategy, we're acting consistently with what we, the expectation of what that, will, what that will say in a final draft. So I, I don't see any fundamental disconnect there at this point. Mr. Secretary, it's always an honor and pleasure. And and now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.